So love is the topic tonight. So there'll be some poetry. I'll start with a poem by Antonio Machado. Last night as I was sleeping. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that a spring was breaking out in my heart. I said, along which secret aqueduct, O water, are you coming to me, water of a new life that I have never drunk? Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart, and the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failure. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that a fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. It was fiery because I felt warmth as from a hearth, and sun because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt, marvelous error, that it was God I had here inside my heart. So, Valentine's Day is coming. That's why I chose love as a topic. Everybody's favorite four-letter word. <laughs> of course, on, on Valentine's Day, we, we celebrate one kind of love only, and that's pretty much romantic love. That's the kind you fall in. and breaks your heart, and you sigh for, and you cry, and you could die for, and you, it's a very painful thing to be involved in. Do you, uh, do you remember being in love, or are you in love, and is it, does it feel good? Uh, I mean, that romantic love, yeah, okay. You feel desire a lot, mm -hmm. that feels good. <laughs> uh -huh. You think about your lover a lot, like where is she, what are he, what is he doing, what are they doing, and fair amount, yeah, okay. You have any fear about it breaking apart or anything? Remember, or you know, you know what it, what it feels like. It's a wonderful feeling. I mean, it, it's, uh, we're built to love it. Nature wants us to love it. In fact, uh, recent science would indicate that the object of our love is not our choice. It's, uh, it's all a biochemical programming, uh, basically pheromones. It's your DNA saying, that would be a good vehicle for our continued replication. <laughs> and so when you say to somebody, I love you, you're really, it's really your DNA's talking, say, saying, I love me. <laughs> of course, the reason that kissing and the sex feel so good is because Nature wants us to keep throwing our genes together. That is a really important process for us to, uh, to survive. Uh, there's some recent studies that show that we really like the exotic because our genes want variation. They want to combine with a, a very different kind of uh, code that will offer some variation, which is good for survival because there's some options there. You're not staying in one sort of line of uh, genetic information. That's, that's why we like the exotic. The thing about romantic love that probably causes us the most trouble and heartache is the sex drive that usually goes with it, you know, the, the passion. And, the, uh, and that, of course, is, is a really powerful part of our, our makeup as, as 
mammals as living beings. Every living being has a desire to replicate itself. Uh, one scientist I read said, the dream of every cell is to become two. Um, the Hindus figured out how to harness this powerful drive, the sex urge, and use it actually as a way of uh, finding spiritual satisfaction, as a kind of uh, way to oceanic bliss consciousness. The tantric practitioners um, devised a lot of different postures and potions and practices. The most famous one and the most uh, widely known one, I think, is, is the yabyum position. You see it on, on tankas, Tibetan calendars. Uh, there's usually, there's the deity, the male figure seated, and the woman is seated on his lap facing him. And it's, it's the yabyum position. And the idea is that you join together the male and female energies, the yin and yang, yab and yum, and that you begin to move that energy that's usually gathered in the pelvic region, you begin to move it up the spine, popping open your chakras as you go, you know, one after the other, and then uh, blow your mind, actually, is what, <laughs> is what supposedly happens. And, and then you become one with the one. There is no longer any uh, me, you, you know, male, female. It's all bliss. It's all that, that uh, refined energy, sexual energy, turned into bliss. Of course, romantic love in and of itself can be very beautiful and nurturing and sometimes leads to children, which is real important for the species if we're going to survive. But there are all sorts of other kinds of love that I want to explore a little with you. Um, there's love of your friends. Why do we love our friends? Sometimes it's different than our, than our lovers. You know, we, sometimes it, it's hard to be with our lovers, whereas our friends are people we like, you know. <laughs> Usually people we like to spend time with or we have some kind of history with. That doesn't mean that, you know, you can't want to spend time with your, with your lover, too. And, you know, you can be friends with your lover, uh, which is the best kind of love. Uh, you know, in, in that individual sense of, the, of loving. There's love of family. Do you love your family? Do you love your parents? All your uncles and aunts, cousins? I think the, we were pretty shocked here in the West when we heard about ancestor worship. We said, what? worship our ancestors. We've become so psychologized that we, you know, kind of now blame our parents for who we are. You know, it's, it's all their fault. So I know people have gone through a lot of, you know, therapy to try to mend that and, and find a way to, to love their ancestors. Or at least, you know, hold them in their hearts in some way. There's, there's been studies on uh, altruism. And there is some genetic formula of who you would go to great lengths for, including, like, I think, cousin eight times removed or something like that. You might even die for. I don't know the exact figures, but there's a, there's a correlation between family and the ability to do something, to go, to sacrifice everything. And that's, of course, the DNA saying, that's close enough to 
that's close enough to ours, you know, we need to protect it and, and struggle for it. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put a cold compress on this thing about love. And when I talk about the science, it's just interesting. It doesn't mean that, you know, um, there's not this sweet human interaction that goes on when we're experiencing love. There is, definitely. Love for country. Now, of course, you're a citizen of a, of a particular country by accident of birth. But uh, do you love your country? Of course, here we are in Berkeley. I don't know. <laughs> love it or leave it, you know. <laughs> We've tried to leave it, actually. We've tried to secede several times. Um, but what do you love about being an American? Do you love what it offers you? Is that, and if, if you love your country, do you, do you love what it offers you? That it's incredible opportunity and freedom. Do you love the land itself? The soil? We live in the most, on the most fertile continent in, in, in the world. This is Gary Snyder. I pledge allegiance to the soil of Turtle Island and to the beings who thereon dwell, one ecosystem in diversity under the sun with joyful interpenetration for all. <laughs> How many of you love the Bay Area? Can you say you really, you love it? I love it. I wake up in the morning and sometimes it's almost enough just to be awake, awakening here. The redwoods, the light, the sun. <laughs> Love of country, it may be part of a, another whole feeling of belonging since we are uh, tribal beings, pack animals, basically, and we really like to feel uh, part of a, a, some kind of social group. And, you know, even though the country is huge and there are 300 million people or however many now, uh, there's that sense of belonging. Uh, sports fans, you know that sense of identifying with a team. I've, I've thought about uh, the, if we ever find life elsewhere, you know, then we'll really have to be identified as earthlings. That will be our, our group because there'll be other beings out there. But if we find life in another galaxy, then we'll have to be galaxy identified. We'll be Milky Wayans, you know. <laughs> And in the intergalactic sporting events, we can chant, hey, 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 Milky Way. Hey. <laughs> Here's a wonderful poem by Wisława Zimborska, Polish poet, Nobel Prize winner, Pulitzer Prize winner, Psalm. Oh, the leaky boundaries of man-made states. How many clouds float past them with impunity? How much desert sand shifts from one land to another? How many mountain pebbles tumble onto foreign soil in provocative hops? Need I mention every single bird that flies in the face of frontiers or alights on the roadblocks at the borders? A humble robin sitting with its tail abroad, and its beak at home. <laughs> Among the insects, I'll single out only the ant, sitting between the border guard's left and right boots and ignoring the question, where are you from and where are you going? Just look at the chaos prevailing on every continent. Isn't that a blue jay on the far bank of the river smuggling its hundredth leaf across? 
And who but the octopus with impudent long arms would disrupt the sacred bounds of territorial waters? And how can we talk of order overall when the very placement of the stars leaves us doubting just which one shines for whom? Not to speak of the fogs, constant drifting, and dust blowing all over the desert as if it hasn't been partitioned. Only what is human can truly be foreign. The rest is mixed vegetation, subversive moles, and wind. Rusloa Zimborska. There's another kind of love that we don't uh, celebrate much and is pretty rare, and that's the Buddha, Jesus, Gandhi, Martin Luther King kind of love that holds everyone in its heart. That, that big love. Love that w wants nothing in return, refuses... Love that refuses to kill but is willing to die. The love inside the greeting namaste, that Indian bow to the divine within each of us that unites us in this incarnation. It makes us one human family. It's a difficult love to feel sometimes, you know. But it can actually be practiced. We have meditation techniques to sort of pump up this heart of, of love. Join the Olympics of love. For a long time in my own Dharma practice, I kind of put that loving-kindness practice aside. It didn't feel right to me. It felt dry. I kind of had a judgment about it, you know, that's kind of too new agey and, you know, I, I thought you either love or you don't love, you know, you, you can't fake it. But over the years of, of doing the practice, it started to come alive for me. I think one thing that really helped is I, when I visualized the object of, of my love, myself, my friends, family, strangers, I tried to see them as children. I saw a picture of myself as a young boy. And as it's the same with uh, members of my family and friends. And then with people, as I walked down the street, I started to see them as children. And it, it was, became very easy to practice that, that kind of loving. Everyone became dear, you know, just um, innocent, sweet. In, if you want to practice this universal love, are you ready to love uh, Ahmadinejad or uh, Dick Cheney? Can you include them? They do have, they do have parents. They did have mothers. They have children. Can we make them human? Can we see them as human? When I, I was teaching with Ramdas a number of years ago and we, we put uh, George Bush on the altar, a picture of George Bush. <laughs> And it was, uh, it was difficult. I, I remember when I first started, the f maybe the second meditation retreat I did in India in 1970. Um, I was sitting there and an image of Richard Nixon came into my consciousness. And Nixon, you know, I had been a newscaster and a rock and roll radio station, and Nixon embodied sort of the evil of the empire and the horrible war and everything that I disliked in American politics. And, and his, a picture, an image of him came into my mind, and I just saw 
his suffering. I saw him, his face is tense and, and stony and hard and beleaguered. And I, this wave of compassion came uh, for, for this man. I think part of it for me is when I meditate and I see my own stuckness, I see my own mind, my own critical, uh, uh, you know, sn nasty, snarling kind of person that, that I can be. I can be that way, actually. I'll admit it here tonight. I know, you know, it's... <laughs> You all think that I'm some kind of saint, but <laughs> that, when I see that, when I see, you know, how difficult it is to control who we are and to really change our personality or, you know, become more loving and kind. Uh, and I see how every, everyone, is, I, I, everyone is fighting the same battle with themselves, with the world. You know, the Buddha was really right. It's a hard place, and it's a hard incarnation. Uh, somebody once said, be kind to everyone because everyone is fighting a great battle. There's still another kind of love, the really big love, the oceanic love of all of creation, just the way it is, warts and all, flaws, perfect in its imperfection, the totality of it. And there are people who can love that much. And Sometimes I can get to a place where I love that much. Sometimes it happens in waking up in the morning in the Bay Area, waking up in Berkeley. D.H. Lawrence wrote, What a catastrophe, what a maiming of love, when it became merely between persons and was taken away from the rising and setting of the sun. This is the kind of love that we are desperately in need of. Can we love that vastness? Can we love the order of things and the turning of seasons? And the, it's all pretty. Uh, it's all pretty miraculous, isn't it? And we don't understand it. That's part of why I think we can love it. This is Pablo Neruda, Ode to Things. He wrote an ode to his socks, you know, Neruda. It's a great poem. This is also a great poem, Ode to Things. I have a crazy, crazy love of things. I like pliers and scissors. I love cups, rings, and bowls, not to speak, of course, of hats. I love all things, not just the grandest, also the infinitely small thimbles, spurs, plates, flower vases. Oh yes, the planet is sublime. The planet is sublime. It's full of pipes and keys and salt shakers. Everything, I mean, that is made by the hand of humans. Every little thing. Humankind has built oh so many perfect things. Built them of wool and wood and glass and rope. Remarkable tables ships and stairways. I love all things, not because they are passionate or sweet-smelling, but because, I don't know, because all bear the trace of someone's fingers on their handle or surface, the trace of a distant hand. Oh, irrevocable river of things, no one can say that I loved only fish or the plants of the jungle and the field, that I loved only those things that leap and climb, desire and survive. It's not true. Many things conspired to tell me the whole story. 
nor only did they touch me or my hand touched them. They were so close that they were a part of my being. They were so alive with me that they lived half my life and will die half my death. Ah, things. And who's to say what's alive and what's not alive? What is divine and what's not divine? I mean, we kind of decided way back, uh, oh, I don't know, centuries ago, that humans were divine and all the other creatures were not divine. You know, didn't Descartes kick the dog? The dog doesn't have a soul. It's just us. We're, we're finally getting over that. Uh, but uh, there's also the, the sense that uh, maybe the inanimate is not as inanimate as we thought. And there may be some sign of life in, well, we know there's life in that bell. Here's a, a little piece of science. If we track a single atom of earth, say an atom of silicon, through time, we might see its journey beginning deep in core magma. Tracing its path, we see it erupt to the surface, find it in rock, then see it eaten by bacteria. It moves on into various living creatures, from microbes to trees and animals by turn, later moving about in water, evaporating into a cloud, falling on a mountain peak, and being carried by water back to the sea. There it recycles through more creatures before it ends in sediment and is possibly remelted into magma again. How shall we say whether it is animate or inanimate, geology or biology? Can it be that what we call life and non-life are simply complementarities in the great dance over time, as physicists have found with mass and energy, particle and wave? That the world is, is the mystical. Why is there something rather than nothing? And why are we here to know of it and experience it? When we arouse those kinds of questions, our heart starts to open. I think we start to love in a way that we don't love when we think we know what we're doing and know what's going on and everything is very ordinary. It's only when we begin to, to realize that, that it's a total mystery. Nobody knows what's going on here. That it starts to, to take on a, a, a quality of, of beauty and we can really feel awe for this existence. I was just in Hawaii uh, It's a rough life, being a Dharma teacher, you know. Um, and I visited Ram Das, And Ram Das has this routine. Once a week, he goes to the ocean, and people uh, take him out into the ocean in a flow. He, he's paralyzed on half of his body. And he swims with one arm, swims around in this little floating device. Then he comes up, and he sits on the shore, and it's a very busy beach, a tourist beach, and he sits and he waves at everybody who goes by. <laughs> and some people, they look at him. Some, a few people will wave. Some people come over and they, do I know you, you know? And then he just grins and, you know, it's sort of like he creates this little, little love center. And, uh, and then I was at his house and we were talking and, he said, he just wrote a book, a new book called Be Love Now. Instead of Be Here Now, it's Be Love Now. And we were sitting talking and he said, yeah, it, I feel it. I feel that way now. He said, I love that wall. He pointed at the wall. I love that wall too. <laughs> he, 
he said he feels this kind of universal love of, of existence, of creation. I think that that can happen for all of us. I mean, you've probably all felt it at different times, but I think you can cultivate it in the same way that you can cultivate love for humans, other humans. I feel it, uh, again, when I, when I really feel the mystery of existence, and, and I can touch that in my meditation practice with every breath. What is this? What is life? Why is it here? Why do I think it's mine? <laughs> Whose is it? <laughs> Which is, of course, the number one question you must ask in Buddha Dharma. Whose is it? The entire Dharma can be summed up in a knock-knock joke, yes. <laughs> the disciples come to the Master and they say, and the Master answers with the number one question, who's there? And if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over again until you do get it. I think we're prevented, I think, from loving all those other kinds, those big kinds of loving, often because we're so self-obsessed. We're so much in our own drama that we fail to see the beauty of the world or the wonder of the world or the mystery of the world. Sansanim, great Zen master, Korean Zen master, said, take a step back. Just step back out of it. And everything sort of takes on a, a different quality. You're not you with your aggressive mind trying to fix the world, trying to get something done. Look at that. What's that like? What is that? You can have a little irony in your in your life, in your ordinary life. This is Lou Welch, old beatnik poet. A small sentence to drive yourself sane. The next time you're doing something absolutely ordinary, or even better, the next time you're doing something absolutely necessary, such as peeing, washing the dishes, cleaning the room, say to yourself, so, it's all come to this. <laughs> the ordinary, so magical. How did we get here? What, is, what are we doing? couple more little things to read, and then we'll have time for some comments, questions. Albert Einstein. A human being is part of the whole, the universe. We experience thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. The delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of love to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. And he was really smart. Okay, and Hafiz, a great lover, the great secret. God was full of wine last night, so full of wine, he let a great secret slip. He said, there is no one on this earth who needs a pardon from me, for there is really no such thing as sin. The beloved has gone completely wild. He has poured himself into me. I am blissful and drunk and overflowing. Dear world, 
draw life from my sweet body. Dear wayfaring souls, come drink your fill of liquid rubies, for God has made my heart an eternal fountain. God has made my heart an eternal fountain. There's no error, there's no sin, there's no mistakes. Everything is perfect in its imperfection. It's all exactly the way it should be. And it could use a little improvement. <laughs> That's an old line of some Zen master. Anyway, um, anybody have something to add or comment about? Or Clinton? others um, when I'm doing meta meditation and um, I also struggle with that feeling that love and feeling that uh-huh. genuine sensation going out but um, but I notice that sometimes when I'm talking with someone or I just see someone I'm able to see um, this childlike presence in them I just it comes you know it's not like mm-hmm. um, I'm looking for it I just uh-huh. see it and I've always thought that I've always looked outside for the mm-hmm. answer to that, like, oh, they must resemble a child or something. I've always looked for some sort of physical reason for that, never looked sort of within it. How am I feeling about that person? So uh-huh. um, I appreciate that suggestion on the, both of those levels. Great, yeah. I was doing that with my daughter once. We were sitting uh, at a cafe and watching people go by and trying, and trying to see them as children which you can pretty much, I mean, kind of. And she got very sad. She said it made her very sad because everyone had, you know, lost that. Everyone is so vulnerable as a child, you know, and innocent, and then, you know, you lose it to some degree. But, you know, we are all like children. I don't think we ever really, we don't ever really get grown up you know, it's, you know, we're all trying to put a good face on it, you know, act like grown-ups. But, you know, we're all just stumbling through. <laughs> it's all the playground of the world. Sometimes you skin your knee. Um. Just talking about the, the, the theme of children, one of the things that has um, influenced me or, or struck me recently, I was reading about um, Ishii, the last of his tribe, um, and one of the descriptions of him as a person, you know, he, he um, was made a janitor after they discovered him as... Um, as the last of his tribe, and and um, they said, or it was written that um, he thought white people were intelligent and smart and able to do things, but not wise. Mm-hmm. And in turn, we thought him as you know he he was good and innocent and generous and kind and. Like too much like a child. <laughs> you know. Thank you for that. Too much civilization. Of course, we like our central heating, but yes. Yeah, too much civilization. I find it easy to experience that love when I look up and see the clouds and see the mountains and see people and their shiningness, but when my iPhone doesn't work the way I want it to, I feel (laughs) enraged. And when I'm doing the necessary and feeling like it's come to this, how, how can I experience that love that's so large 
in the sort of ordinary, necessary, every day? You can't. I, you can you can try and but but don't you know, uh, you know you can set up too much of an idealistic kind of you know I'm going to walk through life you know like that. Uh, you know all we all we can do is do our best you know and and I think that all of us I'm talking about us Westerners who went over to Asia in the early, in the early years, nearly a half a century ago, 40 years ago, 40, 35, 40 years ago, and started doing this practice. We thought we were going to really become perfect beings. I mean, that's, been, that's sort of the, the Western imp impulse is to perfect, is to get, you know, get it all smoothed out and taken, you know, no flaws, and I think we're, we've realized finally, <laughs> only recently <laughs> have we come to realize that, you know, there's only so much you can do, that we are, we are born into a particular moment of the history of life on this planet and a particular kind of brain and consciousness, and it's, we're not built to be mindful all the time or loving all the time or, you know, it's just... Uh, our biological programming is so deep and so strong, uh, you know, to, to be often the other way, you know, the ways that we think are wrong or bad. So all we can do is try and forgive ourselves over and over again for not, you know, being in cosmic consciousness when we pee. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, <laughs> it's okay. You can just clean the room. I've listened to your CD numerous, numerous times, I think. I, I'm just reminded that this one thing that you said is, you know, if you're going to start blaming things on people and things and everything, you might as well just blame it on the Big Bang. <laughs> blame it on the Big Bang. I, and I love that. Sometimes I just go around going, oh, let's blame that on the Big Bang. If that <laughs> didn't happen, none of this would have happened. You know? <laughs> and I love that. So I really appreciate your sense of humor. It gets me through. Good. I'm glad. It gets me through, too. Otherwise, I, <laughs> I wouldn't have made it. You've, you've been reading, I don't know, about the new, uh, there's a new book out by Brian Greene about parallel universes, the multiverse, and all the different theories that sort of, all the mathematics and physics sort of come to the conclusion that there, there probably is other universes and there may be infinite other universes, in which case there is a universe where you are, where you are in cosmic consciousness when you're cleaning your room. Uh, but I mean, the 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 things that the things that are on the edge of our our understanding that we're just starting are are, are really phenomenal, earth-shaking. I think that see the Buddha really wanted to deconstruct the human and sort of take it apart so that you didn't really get too lost in this, your attachment to this single being. And I think we're starting to do that as a species uh, because we're starting to see, first of all, that there's life elsewhere. There's probably life everywhere out there. I mean, what was it? There 45 planets. They've taken one four hundredth piece of the sky and found 45 planets, the Kepler, the new Kepler uh, telescope, that very likely could support life as we know it. Not as we know it, but a life. 45 planets out of one 400th piece of the sky. In just our galaxy, they expect there to be thousands of planets that could support life. And the latest estimate is that there are a hundred billion galaxies. <laughs> so, so 
what does that say? I mean, for most of our history as humans, uh, you know, our recorded history and has been that we are the center of the universe, the center of creation. It's all about us. You know, now, I mean, I think it's really good news that we're finding. It takes the pressure off, doesn't it? You don't, you don't have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. Others have, you know, it's about them too. And I really, I really think it's a, it's a blessing, a blessing. You know, we've really thought too much of ourselves. And uh, that's not to say that, you know, we're not great and we should love each other. And, but Mark Twain said, uh, the more you think you create yourself, the more disappointed you will be. So, um, anything else? Anybody else? Yes. Um, I just, I just wanted to mention. Yesterday, I read, uh, I read something from a man I've heard of, Terence McKenna. I've heard his name over the years, and yesterday I happened to see things on YouTube by him and, and speeches and talks. And one thing he said that I really enjoyed was a statement that. One thing you need to realize is that culture is not your friend. Who? Culture and civilization is not your friend. Uh-huh. Sort of a contaminant that you have to clear up. I have a friendly relationship to, but not buy into it. Yeah, yeah. All it definitely, I think, I think it's a really important point. I don't think we realize how... I mean, we're like the fish in the water. You know, we don't realize how much of how we feel about our lives and how we behave is de- a, a determinant of our civilization and the way it's structured and the way thought and patterns. Everything is is conditioned by the by the society. You know? Yeah. Unless you know that, you're kind of a in a fog. Yeah. I believe biology is destiny, but you know, civilization has has a role, definitely. Um, we could go on. Uh, Arnie, you, you have, oh, Arnie has an announcement. Thank you. Um, a week from Sunday, February 20th, at um, Redwood Gardens, the community room uh, up at the top of Derby Street in the senior housing, if some of you know that, it's a very beautiful building. Uh, Sunday, February 20th, is the 53rd anniversary of the creation of the peace symbol, which was created in 1958 um, uh, for the first Ban the Bomb March in in England. And then it it came over here through the student peace movement, and by the uh, mid-60s was on everything from tongs to uh, drum cases. Um, we're going to be uh, celebrating, we've been doing this for three years, celebrating the peace symbols, uh, nativity as I call it, um, at Redwood Gardens at 3 o'clock. And we are going to celebrate the life of a woman some of you may have known, Claire Birch, who was a, uh, uh, a habitué of the avenue and People's Park, did many vi- uh, videos uh, up there. She also was a poet and a songwriter, a composer. And if you come, you'll see her great Picasso-like collages of her great friend James Baldwin. So it's going to be um, a wonderful day, the 53rd anniversary of the peace symbol. We first started this in 1958 for the Golden Jubilee. Uh, it was a full moon eclipse. So we want to, um, we're keeping that going, and we'd lo- love to have you all up there again. Sunday, February 20th, uh, 3 p.m. at the um, Redwood Gardens at the top of Derby Street. Thank you. Thank you. Let's uh, just sit together for a minute before we leave. Thank you all for being here. It's always a delight to come to this group. Maybe just uh, feel your heart. 
Feel your breath coming in at the heart center, right below your sternum, and just fill yourself with that kind of tender, loving energy. Fill every cell of your body with it. Let that loving energy, that light, tender feeling radiate out with every exhale and embrace the world, embrace everyone in this room, everyone in this town, everyone in this state, everyone in in the universe. We dedicate the efforts we made this evening to understand ourselves, to soften our mind and our heart. We dedicate whatever merits were accrued to the liberation and happiness of all beings. See you somewhere on the path.